This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to Antarctica. We won't be talking about penguins or huskies or Mawson and Scott. Tonight it will all be about climate scientists. I had the idea for this show from a film at the Transition Film Festival called Ice and Sky. It was about Claude Lorius, who is a French glaciologist. We saw how he went down to Antarctica in the 1950s. The war was just over, and even though the Cold War could have made cooperation difficult, Lorius made many friends with Soviet and other scientists down there, and they began work on the ice cores. Later tonight, we'll talk to a real glaciologist, Dr Sue Cook, about what this involves and how we can find the history of our climate going back over 800,000 years in these ice cores. They're like big um, cylinders of ice. You may have seen them on TV. At around 5.30, Dr Tony Warby will talk to us about sea ice. He's the CEO of ACE CRC in Hobart. And right now, as we go towards winter, the greatest seasonal change on Earth is happening around Antarctica. The size of Antarctica is twice the land mass of Australia, and with the sea ice firming up around its coast, it's almost double again. So Tony studies that, and he has some sensational news for us. Is it actually getting less each year, as you'd expect? Well... Anyway, back to the film, which made me feel such admiration for climate scientists. The film was Ice and Sky. A few days after I saw that film, I read with shock that the climate science jobs at CSIRO were being cut back and there was a wave of international horror. Other countries need our research. Data for the Great Southern Ocean and Antarctica is in our backyard. So... I've invited Dr David Etheridge from CSIRO to have his say about the importance of climate scientists working in Australia. But then I thought, I don't really know what they do down there. And how is Antarctica vital to the Earth's climate system? So David Etheridge is here to explain. He's the Principal Research Scientist with CSIRO Oceans and Atmosphere in Melbourne. Welcome to the BZE Show, David. Thanks very much. Could you first set the scene for us? What's it like doing climate science in Antarctica? I know you've been on quite a few field trips. Well, it's it's quite a different uh, place to be uh, when you're down there. You certainly notice it's uh, a big wide land and it's full of all sorts of 
different information that we can get access to on uh, on the climate of the planet and uh, the impact that we're having on it. Was it inspiring for you to be there working in collaboration with international team of people? Yeah, I think it's uh, look it's a very privileged uh, role that we have down there. Australia has a very uh, prominent role in the Antarctic uh, science um, platform. You know, we do. Uh, <clears throat> occupy a fair range of the of the Antarctic coastline with our stations there. We access the inland uh, ice sheet. We carry out a lot of uh, um, ocean-based research. <clears throat> so it's it's both geographically wide. Um, it's also internationally quite uh, quite wide. We interact a lot with most of the nations who have uh, interest in the Antarctic research. And it's also uh, it has an enormous range of uh, scientific disciplines. So, when you say climate science, for example, <clears throat> you bring in there a lot of a lot of the different disciplines involved in uh, in climate. Uh, personally, I'm an atmospheric scientist, so my role is really in, into uh, in looking into the uh, composition of the atmosphere, both now and over the long term past. And it's it's that information that we we uh, we get from the from the Antarctic ice sheet. Well, look, the International Panel on Climate Change found that there was a lack of climate data from the Southern Ocean, and they said we need to understand the role of Antarctica in slowing the rate of climate change, plus how the ice sheets will add to sea level rise. Could you just tell us what the state of play is at the moment? What do we know for sure? OK, well, look, my, my expertise is not in sea level rise itself, uh, but I have... Uh, done some work in that area. Of course, the Antarctic ice sheet itself is a very large um, body of frozen water, and it contributes significantly to changes in sea level, depending in depending on the amount of ice that it's uh, it's storing. And that that amount of storage depends on the amount of snowfall, less the amount of ice which is re- removed and ends up in the ocean. So there's two potentially very large ways that that ice sheet can change and can contribute to sea level. One of the earlier pieces of work I was involved in was to look at how, basically, how the ice sheet works, how it how it accumulates, how it flows, and how it does add to, to or remove from uh, a global sea level. But what led led from that work was a very good understanding of the interior workings of the ice sheet, and and from that we 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 started to see that as well as contributing to um, a large role in the global climate system. Uh, it also, the ice sheet was also holding um, and accumulating evidence of of global change, and that that change, that record of of change, went back a long, long way. Yeah. And we now know from from the ice core program, where we've been drilling cores into the ice sheet and extracting them. That this record goes back most of a million years, around about eight eight hundred thousand years. Yeah, so that's what I saw in that film, the Claude Lorius, and he said, you know, in these recent years, the CO two component has gone up, but he could even see radiation from when nuclear bombs were detonated. Even anything seems to turn up in the ice. It's a very pristine environment, but evidence of things that are happening in the world turn up there. And that's a really good way to put it, because um, we can now, with with extremely uh, sensitive analytical techniques. We can pick up uh, really, you know, if, there's a, if the Earth sneezes, we see it recorded in the in the Antarctic uh, mm. Antarctic ice. So, so what we have there is an archive of of changes both back 
nat in in natural uh, in the natural uh, history of the, of the planet, uh, moving through into the early days of of uh, human interaction, and now more so into the into the last few decades. So we can bring the Antarctic ice record right up into the period of, uh, of of recent decades, and that that helps us out a lot. The the ice itself can record, as you say, uh, you know, uh, radioactive nuclides, uh, can uh, evidence of climate variation. But the key thing about the ice from the atmosp atmospheric scientist's perspective is that there's air in there. The, it, it, the ice starts off as snow, gets more and more compressed, and and that those air channels end up as um, very nicely sealed and preserved bubbles of past air. So there we have a unique archive. It's not it's not uh, found anywhere else except in polar ice, Antarctica and Greenland. And from that we can start to really see how the atmosphere has changed. Uh, and we can tie those changes to uh, natural events, glaciations and warm periods, uh, volcanic emissions. Um, we, but we can also now, of course, look at how the, the human imprint in the atmosphere has mm. become dominant over the last few centuries. Look, um, David, I would like you to give now some short answer questions. Just, I think this is an, um, I'm very glad that you're talking to us because I don't think we hear enough about Antarctica. And for me, it's just really basic knowledge. I would like you to just give short, like one word answers, if you like. What about if all the ice in Antarctica melted, how much sea level rise would that create? I think the the, the the Antarctic ice sheet, uh, the West Antarctic and the East Antarctic, these are large stands of ice. I know you want a short, a short answer here, yeah. but I'm a scientist and short answers are hard to come by in my field. <laughs> so this is a, a bit longer. T together, you know, they were talking kilometres of stand of ice there on the on the Antarctic uh, bedrock. If, if melted, they would contribute of the order of uh, 100 metres or more of sea level. Right. So 100 metres rise in a ballpark. So how much do you expect by the end of the century? Again, that's not my, my area, but I, I can tell you uh, that the predictions now for, for future sea level um, are wildly varying depending on how we predict those ice sheets to behave. So we're locked into, let's say, several tens of centimetres of sea level of the order of half a metre, say, uh, to the end of the century. But the, var the variance on that is probably uh, in the upper end. If the ice sheets do become more unstable than we think they are, uh, both Antarctica and Greenland, then we can add to that to the tune of a metre or more. Okay. Well, if more snow is falling, as you said now, because of global warming, there's more precipitation. Snow falling on the mainland of Antarctica... Does that balance out with the amount of ice that's drifting off at the edge? It can do. Um, and a warmer atmosphere will actually allow more vapour to be held in the air and more snow to fall. So, so that's one area that, that's been looked at, is can the, can the snowfall that's accumulating more in the centre uh, offset the uh, more rapid removal of Antarctic ice around the coast? Uh, so, yes, that's definitely a, a, a potential process. At the moment, though, I don't think it's sufficient to be keeping up with the melt, uh, especially uh, in the warmer parts of the ice sheets and in, in, and in Greenland. Right. Well, now we have a longer question. I've heard that the West Antarctic, we hear a lot about the Larsen B ice shelf, the West Antarctic Peninsula. It seems to be melting at a greater rate than other parts of the continent. And um, Dr Taz van Omen said, 
the East Antarctic ice sheet is, you know, previously people hadn't worried too much about it, but he said it's probably not the sleeping giant we thought. <clears throat> At least the giant is starting to twitch. So how can we warn the public about this? It's not like coral bleaching in the Barrier Reef. We can't see it. And it's a very slow-moving thing, but I think it would have massive implications for people who want to go on exporting coal, oil and gas, wouldn't it? You've tied a lot of things together in that. I'm sorry. Um, and you wanted the short answer. Uh, no, this is oh. a longer answer. But, you know, <laughs> I, I know this is the hard question. You're doing the science, but the people who are making the emissions, you know, the industries that are, you know, we've signed up in Paris to lower our emissions, and that seems to be going on completely separately from the research scientists who are telling us quite alarming things. If West Antarctica is melting quite rapidly and now East Antarctica, according to Taz Van Omen, is twitching, it's got massive implications. It does. And let's go back to the research. Um, Maybe a decade ago, uh, it was most of the concern was around about uh, around the Greenland ice sheet, actually, because it was Greenland is much warmer. Uh, the ice sheet is much more responsive to temperature and it was expected and the models, the early models showed that maybe there wouldn't have been much ice with a few degree warming and that would have added sea level in the same way that the Antarctic did. But the <clears throat> but a program of ice coring there went through what we expected to be regions of no ice uh, from, uh, from a period of 100,000 years ago or so. But there was ice there. The upshot of that was that the Greenland ice sheet looks to be maybe a little bit more stable than we thought. So the sea level rise that we knew happened 100,000 years ago, 120,000 years ago, must have come from the Antarctic. So the next project was to look at, well, the next most susceptible piece of the Antarctic, and that was probably expected to have been the, the West Antarctic ice sheet, as you said. Now, recent results that we're getting from sectors of that ice sheet, and this is done through work with the University of New South Wales, showing that in fact there are extensive parts of uh, West Antarctica that has ice from that warm period of 120,000 years ago. Now that brings us back to the East Antarctic because we know then that the East Antarctic must have contributed contributed to some of that sea level. Mm. Now that's a bit worrying because we've, as you said, expected the East Antarctic uh, ice sheet to be this big frozen, fairly unresponsive, unresponsive lump. Mm. Now the the ice core evidence is showing well maybe that's not the case. It was probably uh, more it was more interactive in that warm period, but also the more recent uh, evidence that we're finding from the Australian Antarctic program, which is going under the ice sheet and into these essentially chasms uh, below the ice where ocean water is penetrating under the main Antarctic ice sheet and showing that it could actually destabilise the the ice sheet through warming and greater sea level. So this great sleeping giant, perhaps, uh, as as, uh, Dr Van Omen was saying, uh, could be awoken, and I think that's now uh, an area of of intense research to find out how quickly uh, that that could happen and how much actual actual, uh, sea level... Uh, could be uh, uh, added to from that from that region of Antarctica. Well, thank you for such a comprehensive answer to that. Well, would you say the melting in Antarctica is irreversible, unstoppable? I think in our time frame, yes. Um, uh, the, the long-term evidence, you know, the geological and glaciological evidence of the ice sheets show that they do uh, wax and wane through cold and, and warm periods. 
but the over our time over our time scales of let's say centuries looking forward into human uh, human uh, the human future uh, I don't think we can see anything uh, but a reduction in 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 polar ice um, it's just a matter of how much uh, the uh, how much can we arrest that reduction so I think the uh, the reversibility is 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 almost certain over over that time scale, but the other thing about the time scale is that this this uh, melting of uh, substantial melting of ice probably is a, is quite a slow process. These are large amounts of ice; they're already quite cold. Uh, you have to add a lot of heat to them to get uh, to get them to destabilise. Well, the, so it, yeah. uh, we're not talking about something which will happen overnight. No, but it's certainly within the uh, the climate projection time frame. Let's say. Uh, several decades. Yes. Look, I don't know if you feel like talking about the cuts to CSIRO climate jobs, but uh, Greg Hunt announced a new icebreaker ship going down there to do research and how this will bring lots of jobs to Tasmania, I suppose, building building the boat. But an, a, a new, and a new climate research hub being announced for Hobart, but I didn't hear anything about valuing and respecting the work of existing Australian climate scientists which the whole world depends on. The outrage when the jobs were cut from international scientists was massive. What, what do you want the public to know about this? I think there's, um, again, an anecdote here. A lot of what we've learnt from about, about the present atmosphere, let's say, goes back to that early work that we did and other Australians did in the ice sheets. They were looking at how ice moved, um, <clears throat> how thick it was, um, how it responded to climate change, these sorts of things. But what led from that was this wonderful resource we have in the ice core record of the atmosphere from, as I said, 800,000 years ago through to present. That information has led us into a much better understanding of the Earth system. And that, uh, that information gets fed into these models, which are uh, more and more sophisticated and allow us to predict how the uh, climate will change over the next decades. So to value that, uh, the ability to predict the behaviour of the Earth's thermostat, let's say, or the behaviour of the ozone layer uh, in being able to filter out the sun's rays, these things are very hard to value. They're very, they're very valuable resources. Yeah. Uh, but to, to put them into, let's say, an accountancy spreadsheet and uh, try and divvy up that value, things often get missed. I suspect that's what may have happened in this recent announcement of, of jobs cuts. Uh, there's finite budgets there for funding uh, these sorts of activities. But I think the wider impact of that work on Australians, on, on, the, on the planet, um, needs to be somehow better valued because at the moment I think we're seeing a, a very sort of rationalist approach to it. Now, that, that can be changed. Um, the budgets are only... Uh, a budget long, um, so let's let's hope that the uh, the changes that we're um, being told may happen uh, will be arrested and will be uh, we, we may see a, even a better outcome from it if the if the value of what's being done uh, can be uh, can be acknowledged by those who are funding it. Oh, that's a very balanced, very humble sort of answer. I love that because you know you really 
being very reasonable when I think I, I would be getting quite hysterical <laughs> if it was me. So thank you very much for that um, uh, talk, uh, David. And um, I hope we can have you on the program again. I've actually got much many more questions to ask you, so we have to get on to the next guest. But thank you for speaking to us today. Well, thanks very much for having me. That's right. That's uh, uh, Dr David Etheridge from the CSIRO. And after the break, we're going to talk to a real glaciologist called Sue Cook. If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. Our next guest is Dr Sue Cook. She's a glaciologist at the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystems Cooperative Research Centre in Hobart and she spent the summer in Antarctica. So welcome, Sue. Hi, it's great to talk to you. Well, look, I, I've been really looking forward to hearing your account of your trip down there and I'd like you to describe for us what a glaciologist really does and what it was like for you this time in Antarctica. Well, a glaciologist can cover a whole range of things, actually. But in general, we're the people who are studying ice sheets and glaciers around the world and kind of looking at the changes that have been happening in them and also just trying to fundamentally understand the processes of how they behave. So I was down um, in Antarctica this summer and looking at a project where we were putting out a whole load of GPS stations to look for movement in the ice around Antarctica. Um, it was my first time down there, actually. It was an amazing experience. Well, more than amazing. Can you put some more words to it? <laughs> uh, I think it's it's really incredible to see the place for the first time. You, you get an impression through my work um, just of how much ice there is down there. Because the ice sheet, it, it's just the most enormous thing. It can be over four kilometres thick in some places. And the average thickness is kind of two kilometres. It's, it's this huge area of ice. And I knew that kind of theoretically, but until I got down there and saw it, you don't really get the full feeling for the scale of it. Mm. And I was flying in between the two different um, Australian stations down there where we were working, between uh, Davis and Casey. It's a four-hour flight, and for four hours on that plane, I saw nothing out of the window except ice. Mm. Well, I didn't realise that Antarctica is twice the size of Australia and that 90% of our freshwater reserves are stored in that ice. And I'd like to know, how does that amount of ice affect the world's climate system? Well, it does have a big effect, actually, on the climate around Antarctica. Um, obviously, it's surrounded by a region of really very cold seas um, and very cold air temperatures. And that's really what's allowed the ice sheet to get quite so thick. If you look at the other end of the world, for example, in Greenland, then you get a lot more warm water um, circulating around the ice sheet up there. And we're seeing much faster changes in the ice sheet because of that. Whereas in Antarctica, there's this current of kind of colder water. And, and that's been protecting the ice sheet a little bit from some of the changes of climate change. Well, although glaciers move slowly, I've sort of 
by researching this, I've realised that we should think of them like rivers. And I saw a NASA video. It looked like Niagara Falls tumbling into the sea. And I'd like to know from you, would the water from those glaciers take as much water as, say, Niagara Falls into the ocean? If you add it all together over the whole of Antarctica, it's actually more than 100 times as much as the Niagara Falls. But you're right to think of it like a river. Um, It's almost like that same river cycle. If you look at the ice sheet, you're getting snowfall on the top of it, that snow settling and turning into ice, and it flows down towards the ocean, and all the ice that's being lost from the ice sheet is coming out where it contacts with the ocean, either through melting or through the loss of icebergs. So there is this continual flow of ice through the ice sheet. And in Antarctica, it can be moving up to around one and a half kilometres a year, which is four metres a day. So it's not actually that slow. When you look at it, it looks Mm. quite static, but that's actually quite quite a speed, really. Mm. Well, the scale of everything is so huge that you've told us so far, and I read about the Ross Ice Shelf, which, you know, the heroic in the era of Mawson and Scott, they struggled across that Ross Ice Shelf. I read a lot about it in the historic sense, but it's about the size of France. And if an ice shelf melts, I wondered, is it like taking a dam away from the glacier that's behind it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how they work, actually. The, each ice shelf itself, because it's floating, if if that gets lost, then it doesn't directly contribute to sea level rise. Um, and actually, you can you can kind of see that at home. If you get a glass of water and put a few ice cubes in it, if you mark the initial water level and then wait for the ice cubes to melt, the, that water level won't change. So floating ice doesn't contribute to, to sea level rise directly. But each of those floating ice shelves has a lot of ice sitting behind it, and it's holding it back. I've had one colleague describe it a little bit like the cork in a wine bottle. And if you pull that cork out, then all of the ice behind it can flow into the ocean, and that's the part that really contributes to sea level rise. Is that, have you actually seen that? Where I think they call it carving. And we often see it on TV as an example of climate change. You know, it's just sort of cliffs of ice just falling into the seas. Have you seen that? You know what? I've been studying that for about six years and I've never actually seen it happen myself yet. Mm. But, uh, yeah, I've seen many videos of it as well. Yeah, yeah, iceberg carving is what we call it. And and that's one of the biggest ways that the ice sheet's losing mass. Mm. And some of those icebergs can be absolutely huge as well. I think the biggest one ever was... 300 kilometres by about 30 kilometres. What? So really vast areas of ice can break away. Yes, I I think our maps do us a disservice. When I've been researching this, I look at maps and usually Antarctica is just a little bit of a dribble of white down the bottom of the map with all the more important things like the countries above. But this is a continent where this massive, you know, it's it's, everything about it is massive. And you're absolutely right. It's been one of the last areas for us to get information about. Mm. A lot of the era of satellite data which we've been collecting, there'll often be a a kind of gap around the centre of the Antarctic. And historically, before any satellite data were available, it was just so difficult to collect any information about Antarctica. So for us, we're really looking at a relatively short record a lot of the time to try and figure out what changes might have been happening. Yeah. And we do get colleagues trying to piece together some of the old records from the, the historical Antarctic explorers trying to figure out where the sea ice might have been then or where the ice might have ended back then. Yeah. Well, I saw this film Ice and Sky and I said about that in the preface of the programme and I saw in that 
ice cores coming out of the Vostok station, which represent 800,000 years of climate history. And beneath that ice core, they were drilling down to a certain point, then they stopped. Beneath that was something called the Vostok Lake. And I wondered how can there be liquid water, you know, under all that ice? You know, one of the descriptions was if you throw a billy of boiling water up into the air down at Vostok, it just freezes in midair. So how could there be a a lake or more than one lake underneath the ice there? The temperatures at the bottom of the ice sheet are actually warmer than on the top most of the time. You have all of that pressure of ice sitting on top of it, so that that's causing kind of energy to form underneath just from the sheer weight of it. Um, and so that will drive melting. And you've also got some geothermal heat coming up um, through the crust of the Earth as well. And it's just enough temperature to melt actually quite a lot of water down there. Lake Vostok is really huge. It By volume, it's the sixth largest lake in the world. Um, so, yeah, it's a vast amount of water under there. And there are almost 400 lakes we've identified underneath Antarctica. They're not, they're not rare. There's a lot of water down there. So this is really like really new geography, isn't there? There's the old geography of what Antarctica looks like on the surface, but then there's this other geography underneath of mountains and lakes and um, history Mm -hmm. it's it's really just coming into focus some of it Mm. we've actually got a program um partly funded here in australia called ice cap they've been flying um all over the ice sheet flying radar so that can look down through the ice and see what's underneath and you can see areas of water coming up through that they've been finding kind of new canyons type features they can see all of the effectively mountain ranges underneath the ice and it's only since we've been able to um, fly planes down there um, and get those kind of images through the ice that we really know all of these amazing things that are existing under the ice sheet Right. Well, now we're coming to ice cores themselves. I I have mentioned the film Ice and uh, Sky with my new hero, Claude Lorius, who who sort of pioneered this. And I'd just like to read for the listeners a little description of his uh, realisation that there are carbon dioxide air bubbles captured in that ice. I'll just read a little bit. Uh, One evening, uh, this is Lorius, while uh, drinking a whiskey on the rocks, chipped off an ice core sample, Lorius watched bubbles liberated from the ice, and these bubbles, he thought, must contain air from the past. Like tiny fossils, they contained a sample of atmosphere from the time the snow had fallen, and the oldest ice would reveal the Earth's climate history from its very beginning. Now, I think a lot of listeners will know what ice cores look like and about ice cores containing that that history, but we're starting to get a lot of threats to climate scientists, you know, people saying, oh, we've done enough research on that, enough data has been collected, now we have to do something more in the national interest. And I'd like to know what more is there to be done on ice core research? To be honest, um, I don't do that much with ice cores myself. There's so much valuable information you can get out of them. And it's it's a huge, a huge investment of time and money to get each individual ice core. And that means we really haven't got that many so far. So everyone that we can add just increases our knowledge hugely. We've also got the potential to drill down into older ice than anybody has drilled into before. And at the moment, we've got people trying to figure out which are the best locations to try and get down into the oldest ice with the aim of trying to get back to ice that's a million years old, try and extend our climate record as far as possible. But what's the point in in the present climate emergency? What's the point of that? 
I think the key is to understand how the system behaves. There's so many things at the moment that we can't properly model and we don't fully understand. We're putting together an idea of how um, ice sheets might respond to climate change in the future, but there are so many uncertainties and it, it's really important still to be putting research into that. From a glaciology perspective, some of the biggest uncertainties in future sea level rise are to do with the ice sheet and how that's going to respond to warmer temperatures. And there are some things we just really don't know because we only have these short data records available to us a lot of the time. Yes, um, well, just a minute. Um, I've got a problem here. Look, um, my last, uh, we have to round up it, uh, in a moment, Sue, but I, I have another question. I think of scientists all working there. It's absolutely absorbing, fascinating, and as you say, very new research. Heads down, observing, collecting data, publishing findings. But I feel like it's, it's, we're in this climate emergency. From my perspective, I'm usually interviewing climate activists and, you know, battling against the coal mines and the coal seam gas and the continued export of coal in Australia, but all around the world, you know, getting emissions down. And we can't slow down this melting um, on Antarctica until those emissions themselves slow down. Even then, I imagine it's like turning the Titanic around. It'd be a very slow process for the that you know, sliding um, ice sheet to stabilise. And every year of delay adds to the urgency. And I'd like to know, could you just tell me what do scientists themselves talk about down there when they, um, you know, sort of mention uh, climate change? Do they just think, oh, it's too hard for us to handle, it's too political? Or do they actually see the connection between the emissions and what's happening? Yeah. I think it depends a lot on individual scientists be honest. Some people get really focused in on the processes involved and just doing it for the sheer passion of the science. And for other people, we, some of us take the attitude that just trying to communicate what we're finding is the best way to do something, make sure the public are informed so that they know what the consequences of decisions are. And it, a lot of people, I find, actually, because we're in climate science, tend to be quite well informed about it. So you, you meet a lot of people who are making changes in their own lives as well. I know a lot of researchers in uh, Europe won't travel by plane anymore. They try and take trains everywhere, try and keep their, their own personal emissions low. So everybody responds in a different way. But I think just communicating the science is, is the most important way we can try and help with the problem. Yes, well, thank you for communicating. I, I feel the media don't do us really much service. They report on each very dramatic thing, like the um, Larson B ice shelf collapsing, but then they just leave that story alone again, and the public feeling about it doesn't really gather momentum. You know, around the Barrier Reef, you see a lot more momentum now that the coral has bleached, and, of course, you can get a lot of media noticing that, but that's far too late, and uh, I feel we need to communicate as much about how interesting the scientist science is but also how of practical importance it is you know worldwide importance yeah. um is there anything else you'd like to say perhaps um just about the southern ocean i need i want to ask about the southern ocean how it connects with the world climate system you know it's apparently a unique sort of circulation isn't it in the southern ocean do you know much about that 
I've been more focused on the ice sheet, I have to say. But yeah, it's a completely unique environment. The way that it, it cuts Antarctica off, actually, from a lot of the rest of the world. And the transition between the Southern Ocean and the seas to the north can be really, really rapid. So it, it's its own kind of really unique environment. And it, it's a fascinating one, I think. Okay, well, I think we'll we'll finish there. Uh, and I'd like to thank you very much, Sue, for talking to us. And I hope perhaps in the future you might like to come on the show again because I want to keep this story alive, what's happening in Antarctic science. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was glaciologist Sue Cook, Dr. Sue Cook, from the um, ACE, A-R-C, or CRC in um, Hobart. Thank you very much, Sue. Good evening, everybody. We're back now to the Antarctica show. And uh, Professor Tony Warby is on the line from Hobart. He's an expert on sea ice. And listeners, if you look up ACE CRC, you can watch a fascinating video by Tony. He's the CEO of the Antarctic Climate and Ecosystem Cooperative Research Centre. I'm delighted to have you on the Beyond Zero Emissions show, Tony. Um, So uh, are you ready to talk? Hi, Vivian. Yes. Yes, lovely to be with you. Oh, great. Thank you. Look, we live in uncertain times and the work of your cooperative centre is to prepare government and business for the future. I'd like to know how that international cooperation is having results and how urgently you connect the burning of coal, oil and gas with what you see in Antarctica. Well, I guess the first thing to say is that uh, in relation to the work we do in Antarctica, it is Uh, highly collaborative. We work with a lot of different countries down there. There's a lot of international goodwill in terms of uh, the science that we do. It's a very remote place, so um, it's logistically complicated to get to. And uh, and so there is a lot of international collaboration. Um, There's really not only a sense of community around the work that we do, but around the, the need for that work and I think a a great respect for the science that's being done down in Antarctica and in the Southern Ocean for that matter. And many countries really do increasingly understand the value that Antarctica um, plays to the global community, uh, the importance of the research that is undertaken down there in informing problems that are relevant to the whole globe Um, While Antarctica may be remote, it actually plays a pretty important role in all of our lives because of the the role that it plays in moderating the climate system, uh, because of the climate services that it provides, in particular in the Southern Ocean, through um, driving overturning ocean circulation by the absorption of heat and carbon dioxide and uh, the benefits as well as some of the challenges that, that are being caused uh, by those natural processes. Um, and I guess to go to the last part of your question, um, we are seeing significant changes in Antarctica. Uh, we know that the ice caps both in the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere are changing. We know that the Southern Ocean is changing. And there's a clear indication that um, a significant amount of that change is driven by human activity. Right. Well, look, I'm, I'm very interested in that. And right now, in we're in autumn here and the sea ice is thickening up in Antarctica. 
It's at its maximum extent in winter and apparently it turns the dark ocean white, reflecting the sun back into space. So that sea ice, I've been reading about this or listening to your video too, and that sea ice is really our friend in terms of slowing down climate change in this annual cycle. It, it reflects a lot of heat back to space. But is it getting less and less each year like we see in the North Pole or something different? So you're absolutely right. Sea ice is a very, very important part of the climate system and a friend, as you put it. So when sea ice forms around Antarctica, and just to put this in perspective, the, the area of the Southern Ocean that freezes every year um, and forms sea ice on it is about 20 million square kilometres. And by contrast, the mainland of Australia is about seven and a half million square kilometres. So we're talking about an area of ocean which is almost three times the size of Australia, which in the summertime is just open water and in the wintertime and by early spring is covered with something like a metre of, of ice. So when that ice forms, and you can imagine over that area, it's actually a vast volume of ice that forms. It, um, it actually uh, it, it squeezes salt out of the water as it freezes. So you might take the salinity of seawater is 33 parts per thousand. Um, the salinity of the ice which forms from seawater is much less than that. And that means all that extra salt gets squeezed out into the surface of the ocean. It makes the surface of the ocean more um, salty and therefore more dense. And because it's denser, it's heavier. And because it's heavier, it sinks. And that's one of the main mechanisms by which... Um, uh, the vertical circulation of the ocean is driven. So most places you go around the world, the, the ocean currents are horizontal. Around Antarctica and in the Arctic, the same thing happens in the Arctic. It's this formation of sea ice that drives the vertical movement of the ocean. And that's important because the ocean needs to breathe. And so by, by sending the, the surface waters down to the deep ocean, you're sending... Uh, water that's been in contact with the atmosphere, so it's rich in oxygen, it's going down into the deep ocean, and in turn, that overturning circulation brings uh, other water that hasn't been in contact with the surface for a very long time back up to the top, and it helps to replenish the health of the ocean. Well, so, yeah. can I just interrupt there? Um, in the video, you said that... Um People have said before or thought before that Antarctic sea ice was diminishing just like it is around Greenland and in the north, North, the Arctic Ocean is getting less, sea ice is getting less every year and this, they thought the same was happening in Antarctica but you've found out that it isn't. So can you tell us that because potentially it sounds like a good news story. <laughs> so what's happening in the Antarctic is quite complicated. Um, but make it simple for us, please. Yes, Just... I'll, I'll do my best. So if you look at the whole of Antarctica, then there is a slight increase over time of about 1% per decade. Okay, so it's not very significant in terms of 1% per decade. If you were getting a pay rise of 1% per decade, you wouldn't be very happy with it. <laughs> so in the context of, you know, of how how much the sea ice is increasing, it is very modest. But it is still a very different signal to what we're seeing in the Arctic where we're seeing declines of 5 to 10%, um, you know, over, over similar amounts of time. So what's happening in the Antarctic, though, if you look region by region, 
there are some areas where sea ice is declining very rapidly and there are some areas where sea ice is expanding quite significantly. And the reductions in some areas and the increases in other areas are largely balancing each other out to this 1% per decade increase. Now, the thing that is driving some of those regional, regional changes uh, is also complicated, but it's, it's partly due to the wind. So we know that wind patterns around Antarctica are changing. There's strong northerly winds or stronger northerly winds coming into the Antarctic Peninsula region, which is the area south of Chile and Argentina. And because those winds are coming in from the north, they bring more warmth, they bring more moisture. Um, that whole part of both the land as well as the ocean is increasing as, as rapidly in temperature as anywhere on the globe. It rivals parts of the Arctic in terms of how quickly that area is warming. But there's a compensating change on the other side of Antarctica around, um, you know, in the western part of the Ross Sea. Uh, that may not mean much to many of your listeners, but um, perhaps the area due south of New Zealand. Yeah. And that area is actually experiencing more southerly winds, which means colder air is blowing off Antarctica um, more strongly, more regularly, and it's pushing... It's not only forming more ice when it hits the when that cold air hits the ocean, but it's also pushing it north as well, which is resulting in increasing um, sea ice extent. So, um, so there... There are significant changes happening in different parts of Antarctica um, for reasons that are related to changing wind patterns, which we believe are related to um, changing um, uh, effects in the upper part of the atmosphere as well. Um, and that, that in turn is linked to the whole story around ozone depletion. So, you know, one of, the, one of the things, one of the beautiful things about the climate system is everything is linked. Um, and trying to understand or unravel what's driving what and what's changing at any particular time and, uh, and, and the reasons behind that and how much of it is part of a natural cycle, how much of it is part of an anthropogenic cycle is, is what keeps us busy. Yeah, and as we just talked talk to Dr Sue Cook, she said, you know, it's quite new really. It's just this last 20th century that all of this science has been possible because we couldn't really travel to Antarctica before. And um, I'd just like to know about the application of the research. You've explained very well how Antarctica contributes is a major driver of the ocean system and uh, the climate system but we've recently had catastrophic bushfires in Tasmania and a great drying out of continental Australia so how does Antarctic research you know the climate researchers there how do they help us plan for the future? That's a great question and we do it in a number of ways most importantly is that by understanding what is happening uh, in in Antarctica and in the Southern Ocean and understanding the physics in the system, um, we are helping to improve the climate models that are used for future projections of climate. So uh, a climate model is basically a set of mathematical equations that tries to approximate the complexity in the climate system that I was just talking about. If you change the amount of... Um, Let's say, for example, if you change the amount of precipitation, then you're going to change uh, 
um, the salinity of the surface ocean, and that has to be represented by a mathematical equation. Uh, if you blow the wind more strongly in a particular area, more momentum is going to um, be transmitted into the ocean through the formation of waves. All of these things, all of these processes have to be understood. You can only understand them if you go into the field, if you go to Antarctica and make measurements and undertake process studies to help understand the physical environment. There are, I should mention, also very complex models about the biological environment, and, and we do a lot of ecosystem modelling as well. You have to understand what's going on in order to be able to generate these models, to create the models, to uh, ensure that there is some rigour in them. And, of course, the other thing that we do is as models become increasingly complex and as they're run on um, higher and higher capacity um, computers, so we run these on supercomputers now, which means we can run them at a higher resolution, but when you run a model at higher resolution, it, needs, it means you need to understand even more about the processes um, that you're trying to capture in, in the mathematical equations. So we, this is a long way of saying this is how we improve the climate models, and the climate models are then used uh, in support of so many of the... Um, the other activities that we do. So, for example, we, we recently... Hang on. Yep. Hang on. <laughs> I haven't got time for another example. I'm sorry. Okay. And I, That's I'm, all right. And, and it is so complex, but I fully believe you that this is really vital and I hope it feeds into government people who understand you. Maybe they don't understand you any better than I do or average person does. And I'd like to know, just to finish on, we're going into an election. Government's just recently been... Greg Hunt's recently been done in how about giving a new Antarctic ice breaker um, and he said oh, this will boost jobs in Hobart but meanwhile they're cutting back jobs not the government but the CSIRO is cutting back their climate um, science workforce and I want to know look at what do what does climate research really need do you need it I'm sure you do need the icebreaker because it's a research vessel as well but what else do you need to do this science properly to feed back to us the vital information we need to prevent the worst happening and, you know, get a move on with cutting down coal, oil and gas, in my opinion? You know, I think what the climate community needs most of all is advocates beyond the climate community. So it's all very well for climate scientists to jump up and down and say, oh, you have to do more to fund climate science. But what we really need is business and industry and the general public to stand up and say, Actually, um, the kind of cuts that you're proposing aren't acceptable. This is work that we value. It's work that we know will help improve our futures. And to write to their local member or to, you know, get on the phone to somebody in Canberra and actually advocate on behalf of, of the climate science. So we've got lots of research infrastructure. It's wonderful that we've just had uh, the announcement around a new icebreaker. Um, but as I was saying, we also do a lot of climate modelling work for state emergency service in terms of bushfire prevention. Uh, we do a lot of work for um, different uh, agricultural sectors in the economy so right. that they can help understand the impacts of climate change. So Thank you advocate... Very... 
on our behalf. Thank you very much, Tony. That's okay. really eloquent. We've been speaking to uh, Professor Tony Warby, who's a great specialist on sea ice at the ACE CRC in Hobart. And now we've just got one minute to finish the show, listeners. And uh, I'd like to thank those three guests, uh, Professor Tony Warby, Dr David Etheridge and Dr Sue Cook. Also the team, Jane, Andy today, new in the studio, Roger, Teddy, Miwa, Jody. And me, Vivian, on the air, 